We're going to be looking today at Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10. Included in this wonderful passage are truths such as these. That salvation is by grace as opposed to merit. That we receive salvation by faith as opposed to works. That the whole of salvation is a gift. That the result of all of that is that no man may boast before the Lord. And that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, and we do good works because of God. All of that is in three verses. So we have a lot to consider. Look now to God's Word. Ephesians chapter 2, if you have your Bibles with you, you open them up to that wonderful chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Again, as I said a moment ago, we're going to be looking at verses 8 to 10 of Ephesians chapter 2 together. Before we go further, I'm going to read God's Word for us. Ephesians 2, beginning with verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. We thank God for His Word today and every day. I have five points for our consideration this morning. Five points. Point number one. We are saved by grace alone. We are saved by grace alone. And by alone, I mean by grace and no other thing. Verse 8, put your eyes on the text. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Literally, there that it is not your own doing is this is not of you. This is not from you, is how it reads. We cannot save ourselves. We can't even contribute to salvation. Salvation does not work like we tend to think that it would. If we were the ones to build the salvation machine, needless to say, it would look different than it does, given that God is the builder and the author of salvation. Salvation in God's economy is not based on merit. It's based on grace. There is no earning it from our perspective, from our side. There is no earning it. There is no deserving it. God's economy of salvation is not based upon reciprocity, meaning it's not that we do our part or that we do our best, and then God looks at that and says, given you've done that, I'll save you. God's economy of salvation is not wage. Situation where there's a person working to earn a wage, it's a gift that God gives. Given the language of Romans 5, the free gift of righteousness. Guys, I'm sorry for this technical difficulty that we're having. I think we're going to use
Tommy, what kind of bearing does this have on sermon audio? Does this affect whether you're able to capture sermon audio? Okay. Because I don't know that I need a mic, but we're good. I'll, I'll put this in front of me. That way, at least it's captured. Friends, I'm going to pray for us. I'm a little distracted, but I'm more concerned for you than even myself. Let's pray. Father, this is an unusual day. This is a hard time. We pray for your help and for your grace. You are the great overcomer, and our confidence is in you. We pray that you would help our minds and hearts to track with your word, and we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so let's get back into this now that all this is behind us. Our salvation is not a wage. It is a gift. To use the language of Romans chapter 5, we are given by God the free gift of righteousness. To use the language of John 1, to all who did receive Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus in John chapter 10 says that my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. It is the gift of God, salvation. You see that at the end of verse 8. That it, it is the gift of God. Refers to, just to be redundantly clear, the it, the antecedent, is the whole of salvation. It's not simply faith. Faith, of course, is a gift. We believe that. Amen. That the faith that we have in Christ is not from ourselves. It's something God gave us. But the it is the gift of God. And this text refers to the entirety of salvation from beginning to end. In Matthew chapter 20, there is a parable of the laborers in the vineyard that Jesus tells. We consider this as a church over the summer in the parking lot on a Sunday morning. That parable is wonderful and helpful. Jesus tells it to demonstrate, amongst other things, how we struggle to understand this reality, that God's economy of salvation is based upon grace. There's something about it, because we are wired in such a way naturally where we think in terms of law. We think in terms of merit. We think in terms of what we deserve and what we earn and all these things. And grace just blows up our minds and hearts. In Matthew chapter 20, you maybe are familiar with the parable. The laborers, many of them, begin at the beginning of the workday. And then at various intervals throughout the workday, the owner of the vineyard goes out into the streets and finds people who aren't working and asks them to come and work. He finds people in the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, and finally the eleventh hour of the day, and he invites them to come work in his vineyard. Now the hang-up is this. The people that he had hired at the beginning of the workday, he agreed with them upon what he would pay them. I will give you a denarius. I'll give you a day's wage for your work today. So at the end of the workday, there are workers, some who have worked all day, some who have worked one hour. And they come to settle up with the owner of the vineyard. He's going to pay the people first who showed up last. They came in the 11th hour. I'm going to pay them first, and he gives them to the shock of many, a denarius, a full day's wage. So then the other workers who had worked longer are sitting there thinking, well, surely he's going to pay us more. Surely he's going to give us more than a denarius. But when they come to be paid, they too are given a denarius, and they are indignant about it. They grumble. 
This isn't right. This isn't fair. And we're right there with them. We're like, yeah, it's not. It's not fair. How is it that some worked an hour and some worked 12 and get paid the same thing? We're grumbling along with the laborers. And then the master of the house, the master of the vineyard, the owner responds to the workers who grumble. It says, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. I'm not doing you injustice. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. Then this, I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. I choose to give to this one just as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? That parable, as the parables of Christ so often do, shows us our hearts and how we struggle with grace because we always think in terms of merit and law. Salvation, brothers and sisters, is not about what we have earned. After the fall of man, when Adam and Eve sinned against God and plunged all of us into ruin, into spiritual death like we considered last week, from that point forward, our salvation could never be something that we earned. Our salvation is about looking to another, namely Christ, who has earned salvation for us. So if we want to talk about salvation being earned, on the one hand, that's fine. But there's only one who did that, Christ. And anyone else who is saved in him, it's a gift and it's grace. He gives what he earned. Jesus earned God's favor, and God gives it to us by grace. Jesus earned righteousness. God gives that to us by grace. We are all debtors, debtors in particular to grace, and we can't pay it back, nor does God want us to. He is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. It's who he is. And he delights to lavish his grace upon his children. It's like this. Let me try to illustrate how God has saved us by grace. We can't pay it back, nor does he ask us to. It's like a small child. It's her birthday. And you, as her parent, buy her this utterly unique and perhaps very costly gift. And this little child, upon receiving this precious, unique gift that cost a lot of money, scrambles to her piggy bank and scrapes together a few quarters and brings it back. You, as the loving parent, would want your child to know that she doesn't need to pay for this. That's not the point. Nor, parenthesis, could she ever do so. No, this is a gift. A gift. And you delight in giving it because you love your child. So too with God. Verse 4 of Ephesians 2, But God, being rich in mercy, 
because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This gift is to be received, which brings us now to point number two. If number one is that we are saved by grace alone, probably not surprised what number two is. We are saved by faith alone. Grace alone, faith alone. Put your eyes back on the text, verses eight and nine. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. So in the scripture, in the New Testament in particular, as the apostles write, grace is most often contrasted with what? Merit. Faith is contrasted with what? Works. It's grace, not merit. It's faith, not works. The gift of salvation, this extraordinary gracious gift that we've been considering is received by faith, not by anything that we do. And that verb receive is important. We're going to keep thinking about that word together. In particular, what we are receiving is the righteousness and the merit of Christ. We receive those by faith apart from works. Now, what I'm about to say, we could talk about all afternoon and we will not because I love you and I care about your time. A tremendous concern I know of the pastors at CBC is that we in the church in our context tend to get this, we're saved by faith in Christ alone, correct on the front end of the equation. We tend to get it right on the front end, that we're justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, based on what he did, not what we do. But then from that point forward, upon conversion, sometimes we begin to lose our biblical senses and begin to blend faith and works when we think about the Christian life. And when we think about maybe not that initial entry point into righteousness, but when we think about final salvation, we begin to blend faith and works. We bring works back in, not as fruit of salvation given, but as a piece of our final salvation. I won't labor this today, but the Council of Trent, which was a Roman Catholic ecumenical council in the 1500s, it occurred from the middle of the 1540s to the middle of the 1560s in response to the Protestant Reformation. This council occurred in order to refute the doctrine that the Protestants were heralding. In session six and canon 24, the council wrote these words. If anyone says that the justice, and by justice they mean justification, if anyone says that the justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but that the said works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of the increase thereof, let him be anathema. The most important part is that beginning piece. If anyone says that the justice, the justification received, is not preserved and increased before God through good works, let him be accursed. Now that increased piece doesn't concern us so much because nobody that's a Protestant would ever say that we increase our justification through good works. But there are a number of people who 
would claim to be historically Protestant who imply that we keep our justification in good standing by doing good works. Wrong. Flat wrong. Assurance is now impossible. The gospel is over. If we keep ourselves in good standing with God by good works, we may as well leave right now because it will not happen. There is no place to stand. Biblically, it is all or nothing. The same apostle who wrote Ephesians also wrote Galatians. In Galatians chapter 5, he writes these words. Look, look, I, Paul, he says, say to you that if you accept circumcision, insert there any work of the law, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. And then he goes on to say that people who do that, who accept any work of the law, are accursed and cut off from Christ. Ours is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, Romans 3, 22. So huge question. We're going to think about good works in a minute. But as we continue to think about faith, huge question. What is it? What is faith? I don't think that I can say it any better than brothers and sisters who lived before me and before us have said it. Christians through time, by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, have written these things down according to the Word of God. In the London Baptist Confession from 1689 that we use in our services all the time, chapter 14, paragraph 2, on saving faith, says this. I certainly can't say it better. The principal acts of saving faith focus directly on Christ. Accepting, receiving, and resting upon him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. Praise God. Let me just say that again. The principal acts of saving faith focus directly on Christ. Accepting, receiving, and resting upon him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life. That's good. So how is it? brothers and sisters, that we are saved by faith, to use the language. We are saved by grace through faith. How does that work? Is it that righteousness is somehow, we believe, and righteousness is now somehow infused into us, as though we now, in and of ourselves, just become righteous? Is that how it works? No, it's not. Absolutely not. We are being sanctified. We are being transformed. But our salvation is not grounded upon our inherent righteousness. Or is our salvation by grace through faith because, or be, for the sake of fruit produced in us or good works done by us? The answer to that is no. Is it that faith itself, the act of believing, is counted to us as righteousness? No. Is it that some other gospel obedience is counted to us as righteousness? No. Well, what is it then? It's saved by grace through faith in Christ. What is it? It is that God pardons our sins and counts us righteous for Christ's sake alone. He pardons our sins and he counts us righteous because of Christ and what he did for us. He imputes, that word just means credits. 
God credits Christ's obedience to the entire law to us. He credits Christ's merits in terms of his death and his suffering. He credits those to us. What Christ has done, counted to us by faith, is our whole and only righteousness, as the confessions say. Whole and only righteousness is Christ. It's like we sing, we sung it last week, and I think I even made this comment. Holiness at the most fundamental, absolute level, holiness is Christ in us. And then upon conversion, we do become increasingly holy because the work of the Holy Spirit produces that. But it is Christ's righteousness and holiness and satisfaction for our sins that is our salvation, counted to us by faith. Faith is simply the means, the vehicle, through which that counting, that reckoning of God occurs. Really important before we leave faith. I'm fine to spend a few minutes here because there are not, there are not any other things that we could consider that are more important than these. This is what makes us Christian. Faith is not just the door through which we enter into righteousness as though we then really or actually obtain righteousness through what we do. Faith is not just the door through which we enter into righteousness and then we actually obtain righteousness through our works. No. That error is as old as the church and it is still with us. No, faith is the means through which we are counted righteous with all of the righteousness that we could ever need. Faith is the means through which we are counted with all of the righteousness that we could ever need, namely the very righteousness of Christ. We will never be asked for something. Like as we stand before God, we will never be asked for something that Jesus has not secured for us. That's a mind-blowing and marvelous thought. Nothing could ever be demanded of me that Christ has not given me. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Answer, no one. Nothing. Brings us to point number three. This is not a clever heading, and I, that's fine. I'm calling this point the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity. Here we go. Consider this passage, Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. By grace, you have been saved through faith, not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works. The message of Christianity is not that we need to do things in order to achieve righteousness and atone for our sin. Period. The message of Christianity is that we receive the righteousness and atonement that Jesus has accomplished for us by faith. So those verbs matter. We receive, we don't achieve. And I'm not trying to be cute or clever matters. We receive, we don't achieve. Christianity is a religion 
of divine accomplishment, not human achievement. So at the risk of sounding punchy, if we are here today, if we are here because of something we've done, we can call all of this something, but we can't call it Christian. If we're here today because of something we've done, we can call it something, but it's not Christian. We are here because of Christ, because of what he has done. We are here because of grace. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. Everything we are, we owe to grace. All of our hope, all of our confidence, all of our assurance, all of our peace are found in Christ and in him alone. And here's the great news about that. Unlike us, he is unshakable. He never changes. We change all the time. He never does. Our love, our joy, our zeal, they ebb and flow. But our peace with God remains the same. How? Because Jesus is our peace. Christ is our peace. For us to be forsaken by God, brothers and sisters, that would require that Jesus be pulled down from heaven and put back in the tomb. For us to be forsaken by God would mean that Christ is removed from the heavens and put back in the tomb. And since that's not happening anytime soon, because Christ reigns at the right hand of God and intercedes for us and advocates for us, we have a sure and lasting hope. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Which brings us to point four. We cannot boast in anything pertaining to ourselves. We can't boast in anything pertaining to ourselves. Put your eyes back on the text. Second half of verse 9. All of this, by grace, through faith, not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that, in order that, no one may boast. One thing we are good at as fallen human beings is boasting. But God's plan of salvation removes any possibility of it from us. Let's consider the words of the Apostle Paul in one of his other letters, 1 Corinthians Chapter 1. I think Ryan's going to get these verses up on the screen. We're going to just read together 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. And I may comment briefly as we do. These verses fit beautifully with what Paul is writing to the Ephesians. One of the things, just as a side note, friends, that I love about the Bible is how consistent it is and how we can understand one passage of Scripture with another one. 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 26. Paul writes to the Corinthian Christians in this case, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, well, who's that? Because of God. You are in Christ Jesus. Well, what's he done for us? Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness 
There's that again. Sanctification, holy smokes, and redemption. Christ is all. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. He's citing the prophet Jeremiah, to which we say, um, yeah. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Amen. Who else? What else could we boast in? I know, we know ourselves, we know our hearts, we know our sin, we know our lives. Like Paul wrote to the Corinthians, there's nothing extraordinary about us, nothing noble, there's nothing incredibly virtuous. But here we are in Christ, who has become to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that all who are in Him would know that we are saved completely by the grace of God through what Christ has done in our place. With Paul, we cry out, like he writes in Romans 7, I'm a wretched man. I'm a wretched person. Who's going to deliver me? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice that, that over and over again in the writings of the apostles, as they consider our bankruptcy and our desperate condition and the grace of God and the sure salvation that's ours in Christ, it leads them to praise the Lord. It leads them to boast in Him. With Paul, we would say as he wrote in 1 Timothy, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. That was true in the apostles' life. It's true in mine and yours. One of the reasons that God is so patient with us is so that he can display the riches of his grace and patience to the saints. As we see, man, he's been so patient with him. He's been so patient with her. As you look at your pastor and say, man, God has been patient with Justin. He'll be patient with me. Christ is merciful. That's what we say. We don't boast in ourselves. How could we? Which leads us to point five. We have been created by God in Christ for good works. And he has prepared those good works for us to walk in. Say all that again. Number five, we have been created by God in Christ for good works. And God has prepared those good works for us to walk in. Put your eyes on verse 10. For we are his workmanship, his being God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, not in Adam, created in Christ Jesus. This is new birth stuff. For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We've been talking about grace and faith, and I have aimed to be clear based upon Scripture that nothing in, in terms of our salvation hinges upon what we do. So then the question to that is, well, brother, does it matter what we do? Answer, very much. Brother, should we be concerned with doing good works? You better believe we should. That's what we were made for in Christ. Let's look to the text. Let's consider this together. Good works have been ordained by God. They've been prepared by God for us. They are done by His Spirit's work in and through us. 
even our good works. I mean, this is a remarkable thing to think through. Even when it comes to our good works, we can't boast in them. We can't take credit for them. Why? Because even our good works are of God's grace. Even our good works, he ultimately produces in and through us. John Calvin remarks on this verse, Ephesians 2.10, Everything in us, therefore, that is good is the supernatural gift of God. Something to ponder. He goes on to say, Let godly readers weigh carefully the apostle's words. He does not say that we are assisted by God. He does not say that the will is prepared and is then left to run by its own strength. He does not say that the power of choosing a right is bestowed upon us and that we are afterwards left to make our own choice. Such is the idle talk in which those persons who do their utmost to undervalue the grace of God are accustomed to indulge, close quote. In other words, decisively, our good works don't come from us. It's not that God resets us somehow, that God liberates our will somehow, and now we have the power to just go do it. God does this through us. We are God's workmanship. You see it. We are his workmanship created in Christ for good works. We do not procure any part of our salvation for ourselves, and that includes what flows from our salvation. A lot of times in the church, when it comes to this issue of good works and how that squares with grace and faith and all that, we ask unhelpful questions. We ask, I think, the wrong ones a lot of times. So the question is not, should we do good works in the Christian life? The scripture answers that unequivocally. I mean, it, yes, we do good works. Should we do good works in Christ? Yes. Anybody who belittles good works and says that we shouldn't do them or shouldn't be concerned for them, that's a problem. You know, you've been saved by grace through faith, so don't worry about loving people. Wrong. You've been saved by grace through faith, so don't worry about all that immorality that you engage in. Whatever. I mean, fill in the blank. You've been saved by grace through faith, so yeah, it's not a big deal that you tell the truth and that you don't slander other people. I mean, Nobody, nobody should ever talk that way. So if the wrong question is, should we do good works in the Christian life, what are some better questions? All right, here's three. How do we do good works? Why do we do good works? And for whom do we do good works? Those are better questions. How, why, and for whom? Brief thoughts. How do we do good works? Certainly not by our own power or strength. Certainly not by our own righteousness and goodness. We do good works by the power of God and His Spirit's work in and through us. Okay? Why would we do good works? Not out of fear or dread. Not for merit. But out of love for God. Out of gratitude toward God. Out of joy. Out of peace. Out of security. We do good works. Here, because we want to. We do good works, Romans 6, because we can. We've been set free from the dominion of sin. 
We have now become obedient from the heart. We want to and we can. That's a big deal. Finally, for whom do we do good works? I'm going to explain what I mean. I've said this before, so I don't think anybody's going to fall over. God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. God is in need of nothing. God does not need your good works, but your brother and sister does need your good works. So we do good works for our neighbor. We do good works for our brothers and sisters, and that results in the honor and glory and praise of God. So God is glorified. This is Matthew 5, 1 Peter 2. Let people see your good works and therefore glorify and praise your Father in heaven. But we do them for the good of our neighbor and the good of our brothers and sisters, which results in the praise and the glory and honor of God. So what are, just as we're concluding our time a little bit here, what are some of these good works that we would pursue? I would contend that none of these are for your own personal improvement for your own sake. That sounds scandalous to say in, in the evangelical church, perhaps, but your good works that you pursue are not about your personal improvement for your own sake. What is it that Christ and the apostles emphasize? Here's a brief, not exhaustive list. Love one another. It's a good work. Love each other in the church. Seek reconciliation. Forgive one another. Bear one another's burdens and sorrows. I mean, I'm just quoting Bible right now. Pursue unity in the church. The unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Deny yourself in order to love and serve others. I think we find all the time in this Christian life that we don't and we can't just do what we feel like doing all the time for the sake of others. We lay down our liberty for the good of our brothers and sisters. Paul spills a lot of ink on that. We bear with one another in love and patience. We're slow to anger. We restore people who are caught in sin. That's, that's just a list to get us started. Those are all good works. Those are good things that we should pursue. And if you notice, all of those things are corporate realities. They're relational realities. We will see a lot of those very things that I just listed show up in the latter half of this letter to the Ephesians. So in the mind of Paul, it's quite clear that all this soaring, wonderful doctrine that we're considering drives the pursuit of those good works. Salvation is the work and gift of God from beginning to end, so that includes our good works, as we've been very clear. It includes our sanctification, our growth, our maturation. We participate in those things, just like we participate in life by being alive, but we do not fundamentally do them. So you might be asking, all right, brother, if that's true, then what do we do then? few things. Again, this is very simple. It's not complicated. Here we are. First of all, what do we do? What do we concern ourselves with? All right. Inasmuch as we are able, we decide, we remind ourselves of what's true. We trust the Lord Jesus Christ. 
There's a reason why we constantly are telling each other, trust Christ. Trust Christ. Believe in Christ. That's square one. What do we do? That. Then we apply a number of the means God has given for spiritual growth. We'll think more about that in a moment. Next, what do we do, brother? Flee from sin. Like we thought about in Proverbs. If God says it'll wreck your life, run away. Don't do it. Next, what do we do? We pursue good works. We go after them. We mean to do them. We just considered what a number of those are. Here's another couple of simple things. If you're married, love your spouse. If you have kids, love them. If you don't have a spouse or children, love your brothers and sisters in the church. And another thing, so this kind of circles back to the applying the means God has given. What do we do, brother, if we want to grow in the faith? If I want to be sanctified, what's something that I can do? Here's a very simple handle. It sounds shockingly simple to many. Keep showing up here on Sunday. Keep showing up here on Sunday. At the risk of sounding self-serving, because I'm the main preacher of this church, I would be saying it if I were not. Keep coming. When we come here, we sit under the Word of God preached. We sit under the Word of God read. We come together in prayer. We sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. We come to the Lord's table to receive Christ by faith. Our discipleship begins on Sunday mornings. We like to talk, some of us do, about discipleship. We cannot have that conversation apart from Sunday morning driving that reality. There is no substitute for gathering with the saints. People will talk a lot, usually in less than helpful ways, about you know, spiritual highs and stuff. And a lot of times people have spiritual highs when they're in the assembly, when we're singing, or how I felt during the sermon, or whatever it may be. And then we get mega discouraged because it's like, I don't feel like that during the week. Now, there's a lot of things I could say to that that I don't have time to say right now, but just a question. If you don't feel on Wednesday morning the way that you did at Sunday at 11 a.m., have you ever considered that you felt the way you did on Sunday because you were with the saints? I mean, even to use that, that word feel, my experience was what it was because I wasn't alone. I was with my brothers and sisters, and we were doing this. Keep coming. Talk to people. Build relationships with your brothers and sisters. Build your life around a local church that preaches the gospel you're hearing this morning, whether it's this church or one like it. In the Christian life, friends, the reason that I say what I'm saying, keep coming on Sunday, it's so simple, we all can do it. And in the Christian life, contrary to what we think in our day, the corporate reality drives the private in the Christian life. The corporate gathered life of the church, the Lord has promised to bless it in unique ways when we do this. The Spirit of God shows up and ministers to us in ways that we don't even always perceive. And the corporate gathered church reality drives 
our personal devotional lives, not the other way around. So even as you think about personal rhythms and disciplines and things like that, remember the corporate gathering. We are learning together how to read the Bible. We're learning together how to understand the word so that when we do go to the scripture on our own on Tuesday morning or Wednesday morning or Thursday evening or whenever it is, we've got a better chance of making something of it because we together are understanding the word. When we think about prayer, remember the corporate gathering. Alex, thank you, brother, for your prayer of Thanksgiving this morning. I was moved by it. I was stirred by it. I trust many in the room were too. We are learning together how to pray. All right, I really am landing the plane now. So in this passage, this is maybe more of a personal thought for many in the room whose lives are hard. And some of the things that are going on in your lives I know about, some of them I don't. In this passage, Paul writes very clearly that we have been saved by grace through faith. And in countless other places, Paul and the other apostles write that we have been saved by Jesus. It's the same thing. It's not contradictory. To be saved by grace through faith is to be saved by Christ. So, for you today, for those who are hurting, for those who are struggling, Jesus has saved us. The faith piece is that what he has done is applied to us by faith. The grace piece is this, that Jesus himself is God's grace to us. Jesus, in that sense, is grace incarnate. Sometimes grace feels ethereal. Sometimes grace feels like it's hard for me to wrap my hands around it. Well, consider Christ. Consider Jesus. As Richard Sibbs wrote, Christ is nothing but pure grace clothed with our nature. So maybe as you consider your life this morning, you have a really hard time seeing God's grace for you. It's legit in a world racked with suffering. Having a hard time seeing God's grace. You've been mistreated. You've been misunderstood. Maybe you've been abandoned by people who are supposed to stick with you. Maybe you've been betrayed. Maybe you've been carrying pain around with you for years. Maybe you're carrying a pain right now that won't ever heal this side of heaven. Friend, if that's you, it's my word to you. It's not your life that is evidence of God's grace to you. It's Christ's life that is evidence of God's grace to you. It's the fact that he took on flesh and lived and suffered and died. Read of him. See his mercy. See his compassion. See his grace. He is always those things toward those who come to him knowing they're in need. Christ was mistreated. He was abandoned. He was forsaken. He was crushed and he was killed for us. He fulfilled all righteousness for us. His heart toward us is one of grace and mercy. So saints, look upon him this morning. Consider him. He bids you to do that. He bids you to come. 
come to me, he says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We thank God for him. And now we close in prayer. Our Father, we pray that you would be merciful and gracious to us as we continue to worship you this morning as a congregation gathered. We thank you for Christ. We thank you and praise you that we have been saved by your grace through faith in Christ, apart from anything that we've done. We pray that we would never boast in anything save Christ, his life and death and resurrection. Father, I pray for those who are hurting this morning. I pray for the majority of us who I trust have been distracted and burdened in various ways lately that you would meet us in our need, that you would use the preaching of your word, even in the aftermath of our time together, to minister to us, that we would call things to mind. I pray that you would use the table to which we are about to come. Remind us anew of what Christ has done for us and encourage our souls with that. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.